This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Friday morning sporting edition of Pacific Beats here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Richard Ewart and coming up, we look ahead to the distinctly Pacific flavoured Super Bowl 57. Historically, the Niners, you know, have been big, big favourites in Samoan communities. But, you know, recently, of course, Steelers, you've got KC, you've got Philly. So, yeah, I think people get pretty excited about it. We meet the former PNG Olympic swim star turned sports counsellor and we catch up with the Pacific Oceania Davis Cup team in Barbados. They were actually seeded number five and we weren't even seeded. So on paper, they should be winning anyway, which makes the loss even more heartbreaking. Yeah, tough day at the office and a long journey for the Pacific Oceania Davis Cup team. We'll hear more from the team captain, Emmerich Mara, later in the programme. First, though, since the FRU announced their intention to appoint a new coach for the Flying Fijians by the end of the month, speculation has been rife about who that person will be. Will the FRU look abroad again to find Vern Cotter's replacement after his unexpected resignation, or this time will they opt to go in-house? Of the potential international candidates, the name that's grabbing the headlines is Scott Razor Robertson. As coach of the Crusaders, he's led that team to six Super Rugby titles in a row, and he's a hot tip to take on the All Blacks job after the World Cup. But could Fiji get in first? I put that point to Gregor Paul, rugby writer with the New Zealand Herald. We're in the secret world of who's tapping up who at the moment with coaches. And coaches always love to tell you that they're in demand, don't they? But intriguingly, Razor was talking to the New Zealand media about where he felt things sat with the All Blacks. And he felt there was going to be an announcement coming shortly about how and when they're going to appoint their coach post-World Cup. He dropped a big hint that news was coming on that. But then he also signed off with reporters by saying Bula at the end, which has got everybody talking about whether Fiji are one of the nations that he's had offers. It's probable or it's possible, certainly, because he is one of the most in-demand coaches who's not currently in an international role. So Fiji presumably have been quite smart and have already signed it out, Razor, as to whether he would be willing, ready and available to join them. So I suspect that, that they probably have signed him out. Is that an offer? Don't know. And would he seriously contemplate going there? Not sure. I don't think he would do so if he felt that the All Black job was still available for him to take. Is there potentially, if all sides can agree, room for both? In other words, could Scott Robertson come in, look after Fiji, take them to the World Cup, and then after the World Cup say thanks very much and head off into the sunset with the All Blacks? In theory, it would work on a logistics basis in that he would likely finish up in late June, early July with the Crusaders, depending how far they go in the competition. It'd be a very late arrival. You'd have to question whether that's the right move for Fiji to have a a head coach who's only going to take them through one campaign and only really be available to them in July. So he's not really going to be able to monitor the European-based players or do any of the planning that Vern Cotter was going to be able to do. But in theory, could he do it? Yes. Would the rugby union sign off on him being with Fiji at the World Cup and then coming across knowing that he's going to be the all-black coach? I don't think they would have any objections to it. But I just don't think that would be the right move for Fiji to do that. Were he to take the job in some form or another, what do you think he could bring to the party as far as uh, Fiji is concerned? And what impact could he have on a World Cup campaign, which for him would be very much truncated? 
a lot of people have been asking, how long does a coach need to have an impact? Fiji would be giving him, I don't know, six weeks before the tournament kicked off to get to know the players, to embed something. I think that would be tricky for him to get his head around what he's getting into. He's a really well-prepared and planned coach, which has been a secret of the Crusaders, is that he works on themes that inspire and drive people. So that's his coaching secret sauce. Would he be able to apply that with Fiji in such a short period of time? Debatable. But look, he's clearly a highly successful coach. He connects really well with players. He's got some interesting ideas that work in the current way that the game gets played. He gets it. He was a good player himself. But I think if Fiji want to get their hands on him, they need to make him a long-term offer and say, look, we want you to take us to this World Cup and also the 2027 World Cup more realistically, where we'd expect you at that point to have turned us into a top eight team. And that's achievable for Fiji with the player base that they have. They could be a top eight team. If it were not to be Razor Robertson, are there other international candidates that uh, spring to mind? I mean, clearly David Rennie is no longer in charge of the Wallabies. He has Pacific Island connections. Um, he might be a reasonable choice, do you think? Oh, look, he's probably sitting right now the best choice if he was willing, ready and able to throw himself back into international rugby, having been quite unceremoniously and surprisingly dumped by the Wallabies. In a role like Fiji, bags of potential. Clearly, with the Drua now established in Super Rugby and so many good Fijian players in good clubs around Europe at the moment. And the World Cup draw is quite favourable to them as well, should be said. So that there's plenty of upside going to Fiji. Dave's a real believer in, in culture strength. He brought a lot of that to the Wallabies. He's very proud of his heritage. He's very proud of who he is and he gets that with his players. I think he'd be an outstanding choice for Fiji and he is effectively available and he's also quite heavily experienced now in the international game so never mind Razor if I was Fiji I'd be looking at Dave as our number one option. Do you get the sense therefore that the Fiji Rugby Union will go international not look to one of their own I mean Sunny Sotovacula is available has had so much success with the women's team Simon Rawalui head of high performance has been mentioned in dispatches as well. It's another one of these debates isn't it been having it here in New Zealand to some degree it's like how valuable is previous international experience to come into a job. The arguments are that you absolutely have got to have coached at some level, be it as a skills coach, a defence coach, or an assistant coach at the international level before you can become an international head coach. I look at that and go, well, that creates a really small talent pool. You're basically saying you become like English football where you just sort of recycle the same coaches round and round. At some point, you've got to be brave enough to trust the local guy who's done a good job with the local team and say, well, it's a step up, but he has to or she has to be given the go here. I don't know where they will head. I think the issue with Fiji now is that they, they're running a really improving and strong domestic program through the Fijian Drua, you know, who are playing here in the Southern Hemisphere and half their international team will come out of the Drua, if not more. But they also still have players, you know, scattered across France and the UK where you need to be able to keep an eye. So it's a tricky job to select and manage all those different players given that they're in different parts of the world. So having a guy like Vern Cotter, who'd coached extensively in French club rugby, was a great move for Fiji because he had strong relationships with all the French clubs. So he could go and talk to them about where all the various Fijian players, you know, how they were tracking, yada, yada, yada. So it's quite important to have that relationship. So, like, I don't know if there's one answer. You almost need two coaches are certainly a pretty experienced operator in the UK slash France. But I think every rugby union 
always wants to think that the coach that they've put into the job is one with international experience. I think they'll always want to go down that road first. You mentioned Vern Cotter there. He's gone now as a coach of the Flying Fijians. Rather surprisingly, it has to be said, by all accounts, he had his World Cup year well mapped out and he knew exactly what he was going to do when and he was clearly very focused on the World Cup. Then we're told he left for personal reasons. Do you have any clue as to what the real reasons might have been? I don't really. The only thing that's been swilling around is it's been mentioned, and I don't know if this is true or not, that the Fijian Rugby Union or the High Performance Unit felt that he needed to be spending much of this year, certainly March, April, heavily based in Europe to be talking to the French and English-based Fijian players. I don't think Vern wanted to do that. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons that things came to a bit of a head abruptly. But that, as I say, is unsubstantiated. I'm not sure. He certainly was enjoying that job and he was definitely looking forward to going to the World Cup because he's building a good team. Having the Drua embedded in Super Rugby has really accelerated Fiji's performances and abilities. And they've got a reasonably weak pull at the World Cup. They could be targeting quarterfinals, if not even further. So for him to give it all up just like that, something's happened. Happened and maybe that was one thing, this idea that he was asked to spend time in Europe, but perhaps there are one or two other things that have happened that we just don't know yet. Yeah, Gregor Paul there, rugby writer with the New Zealand uh, Herald on the line from Auckland, referencing that pool that Fiji will be in at the World Cup. Uh, they'd be up against uh, Romania, Georgia, Wales and Australia. So if Dave Rennie was to get the job, that would be interesting. That would be a grudge match and a half. Uh, I think the second pool match it would be for Fiji in the World Cup. But uh, we'll find out who the new coaches were told by the FIU by the end of the month. It's going to be interesting to see which way they ought to go. You're with Pacific Beats here on ABC Radio Australia. It's the Friday morning sporting edition. I'm Richard Ewitz and the growing number of AFL followers in the two Samoas. Frankly, won't know which way to turn on Monday morning when the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles square off in Super Bowl 57. In a match being hailed as the Battle of the Samoans, the Chiefs wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster, whose roots are in American Samoa, will be up against the Eagles' man-mountain offensive tackle Jordan Mailata, born and bred in Australia but with family links to Samoa. Well, those are the star, star Pacific names. Doesn't stop there, as Kyle Evans discovered when he spoke to Dr. Lisa Uparetza, author of the book Gridiron Capital, How American Football Has Become a Samoan Game. We've got Isaac Samalo, who's also with um, Philly. He's out of Hawaii, but some is also Samoan. There's also Christian Ellis, whose father was Luther Ellis. They've got Samoan ancestry as well. And quite a few others on the practice squad, but I think those are the ones who've been listed active for this weekend's game. I think at the moment there's something like 70 players in the NFL of Samoan descent. What is it about the game that makes it so central to Samoan communities? Well, I think a lot of it has to do, you know, with the family ties. So some of these you can see it's like second or third generation who have been part of the game. And so it's been a game that's been really woven into a lot of our community and our family events. But we also have, um, you know, initially people coming from especially American Samoa. And so you have that pipeline coming earlier with the college scholarships drawing 
our young men into the game. But, of course, that's a little bit different now because you have people like Jordan Mileta who are not, you know, coming strictly through that pathway but coming from across the Pacific as well. So those pipelines have turned into a bit of a network continuing to bring our young men into football. Yeah, well, look, I suppose we're definitely reaping the rewards uh, of that network. Is this going to be the first time from your memory that two Samoans have faced off in a Super Bowl final? Oh, that's a good question. I think so. I mean, we definitely had some of the kind of elite players from past years, but not as many on the active roster. We've had on one side, not necessarily the other. So, yeah, it's actually a pretty big matchup happening this weekend. Yeah, well, I think it's probably safe to say it's history-making in the sense that there's one American Samoan player in Juju Smith and player with independent Samoan heritage, obviously grew up in Australia, in, uh, in Jordan Malata. Just on those two players, you know, you've got one who's an offensive tackle and, and one who's a, uh, a wide receiver. Are they pretty different positions? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the line has a very particular kind of, um, you know, set of skills, but also what you would expect. I think more stereotypically what people would expect from, you know, someone players, the kind of body size versus a wide receiver, you know, you've got to be a lot, um, not, not to shade the linemen at all, because there's a lot of linemen in my family, but <laughs> you have to have speed. You need to be able to have height. You've got to, you know, be able to catch the ball. So those are two very different kinds of positions. Yeah. The wide receivers probably, it probably gets a little bit more of the, uh, the flash and the cachet, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Just given the athletic abilities. Yeah, I think the linemen are usually expected to be the kind of quiet stalwarts, you know, on the line, and they don't get as much attention necessarily as the other positions. Now, I know Juju Smith, is uh, he's been a well-renowned player from a while, but uh, Jordan Malata essentially came out of nowhere, obviously recruited out of Australia with next to no experience. He was a, he was an, he was a rugby league player for pretty much all his life. What kind of season has he had this year? I imagine he's, he's probably made a, a pretty big impact. Yeah, actually, I think people have been really, really impressed, you know. So you have somebody like Juju who, you know, comes out of Southern California, who's been part of, you know, like Ainga Foundation, you know, the combines, the trainings and things like that. And so you see him set on this pathway in football. And then you look over across, I would say similar with um, Isaac Samalo, you know, his father was a player, he was a coach, another kind of football family. Um, But then you look across and you have somebody like Jordan Mailata who – I think is maybe just the first or second um, to get drafted in the NFL without having come through the American school system, the American college system. And so, you know, they, they saw a lot of potential in him when he got drafted um, and wasn't, you never know how it's actually going to work out. But actually he's been, he's been phenomenal and people were really positive about his contract extension, um, which was, you know, worth a lot of money. Yeah, that, that you did touch on that. The fact that he was recruited without coming through the college system is so huge. I know just from following other American sports like basketball, the collegiate system really does offer so much exposure for players who go on to get drafted. The fact that he didn't go through that pathway, is, uh, it's a bit of a minor miracle. Just moving on, what does a Super Bowl day look like uh, in American Samoa? Well, I think there's lots of barbecues. Some of the families might be, you know, having the kind of watch parties. I think especially depending on if there's a personal connection, you know, to the players or particular teams. So historically, the Niners, you know, have been big, big favorites in Samoan communities. But, you know, recently, of course, Steelers, you've got KC, you've got Philly. So, yeah, I think people get pretty excited about it. And what about in terms of like funding, investment, things like direct migration? Do you think having such a high profile Samoans 
in the Super Bowl could could lead to more of that, I guess particularly in independent Samoa where the game probably isn't as, as big as what it is in American Samoa? Yeah, like you said, it is a minor miracle to have somebody like Jordan Mailata in the Super Bowl considering the pathway that he's taken. And so I think there's going to be a lot more interest in whether the international you know, player pathway is something that can recruit more people from this side of the Pacific. Dr. Lisa Uparetz, the Senior Lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland, author of Gridiron Capital. She's speaking to Carl Evans. And as well as those four Samoans, you can also throw a Tongan into the mix in the form of the Eagles defensive tackle, Marlon Tuipiloto. I should mention that Isaac Samalo has already won one Super Bowl with the Eagles. That was number 52. Uh, so if he picks up number 57, he'd have uh, two in the bank. And they get, was it huge rings they present to the players after they win or something along those lines? But uh, anyway, that will be a pretty remarkable achievement for Marlon should he pull that off on that Monday morning, our time. It's a project that's supposed to prevent deforestation. Hidden from the world. It's something that boils blood. We bought these carbon credits in good faith. Greenwashing the climate crisis. So the figures were fudged, made up. They're hot air. They're not worth the paper they're printed on. It is a form of neocolonialism. What you saw on the ground in PNG is being replicated globally. Four Corners, Tuesday, 8.15pm, PNG time. ABC Australia. Time to take a check on uh, some of the news stories uh, making headlines in the media around the region at the moment. Kyle Evans is with me. Morning, Kyle. Morning, Richard. Happy Friday. Thank you very much. Now to uh, Vanuatu, first of all, former Prime Minister, has said allowing Indonesia into the Melanesian spearhead group was, in his view, a mistake. So why is he saying that? Yeah, that's right. So Joe Natuman uh, has made the comments uh, in support of West Papua uh, and has said Vanuatu have a moral obligation uh, to support West Papua's uh, struggle for independence. So he made these comments to the Daily Post, the Vanuatu Daily Post, during uh, the West Papua lobbies team visit uh, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs recently, and he referenced his country. He referenced his country's own independence in 1980, and uh, said it's time to help with the United Liberation Movement of West Papua and help them do the same. Uh, as we know, Vanuatu leaders have lobbied hard to allow the ULMWP to achieve full membership into the Melanesian Spearhead Group. And uh, with Indonesia also a member, uh, the former PM believes that they tend to look after their own interests. Now, I understand uh, on top of this, Vanuatu's current foreign minister, he's going to go on a bit of a charm offensive, I think. He, he wants the other Pacific leaders in the Melanesian spearhead group to, to back the inclusion of the yeah. West Papuan group. Yeah, so they're really uh, doubling down. So uh, Jotham Napat said uh, he was considering visiting Suva, Honiara uh, and Port Moresby to personally get a yes or a no answer as to whether or not their governments support the ULM uh, WP's membership ambitions uh, before the MSG summit in Port Vila later this year. So he wants a definitive answer uh, on that front and uh, yeah, just to, just to get an idea of where they stand on the matter. So it looks like he's really going to be ramping up the pressure a little bit. Yes, it uh, rather does look like that. Now, another story with uh, West Papuan Connections Rescue Mission underway to find uh, a missing pilot believed kidnapped earlier this week. What's the latest? 
Yeah, that's right. So pretty crazy story, this one. So Indonesian police and military have launched a, uh, a joint mission to rescue uh, a, New- a New Zealand pilot, Philip Mertens, uh, who was taken earlier this week. Um, so this is reported by the Jakarta Post, and it comes after uh, Mr. Mertens was taken after landing a small plane in the remote Papuan highlands. Um, the West Papua National Liberation Army is the group that have claimed responsibility, and they've said he won't be released until the Indonesian government acknowledges the independence independence of West Papua. Um, The New Zealand Foreign Affairs Agency said it was also providing consular support to the family of the pilot. Uh, However, they haven't spoken much uh, on the matter just due to privacy reasons. And uh, to an official in trouble in Papua New Guinea, the country's uh, top legal advisor uh, in a long-running saga has finally been charged with dangerous driving, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the country's secretary uh, for the Department of Justice and Attorney General, uh, Dr Eric, Eric Kwa, was allegedly involved in a fatal road accident back in October, uh, which unfortunately led to the death of a woman travelling in the car he was driving. So he was officially charged for dangerous driving causing death this week uh, and was not even allowed to be released on bail just due to, se- due to the severity of the charge. Um, worth pointing out, he didn't actually apply for bail, but uh, but yeah. I suppose if anybody knows the law, uh, he would. And as regards to the victim, what do we know about her? Yeah, so reports say she was an officer within the Attorney General's department uh, and the crash occurred while they were on their way to attend an official engagement. So, look, really sad, but um, but yeah, look, uh, as, as police have said in a press conference yesterday, nobody is above the law, not even the Attorney General. So Dr Eric Quara on remand at the moment, charged with dangerous driving. We'll see how that case plays out. The PNG justice system, though, the wheels grind rather slowly. Carl, thanks very much indeed for those updates. Thanks, Richard. Pacific Beat. Now we're going to turn our attention to uh, Rugby League because uh, the Maori All-Stars and their Indigenous rivals at Lockhorns again this weekend. But this time... On New Zealand soil last year, the Maori men were victorious 16-10, while it was the Indigenous women that came out on top in their game by 18 points to eight. Five metres away, there's an offload. And through the hands again, the Indigenous All-Stars are going to get there and score a try to go further in front. Outstanding work. The try is scored from Kelly Signs. Just too much strength and power. Yeah, lots of power. And here are the NRL's Arena Gartner and Indigenous Pathways manager Dean Witters to preview this year's men's clash that features some big names and a touch of brotherly love. For the first time ever in the NRL All-Stars, we will head to Rotorua International Stadium in New Zealand on February 11. The exciting matchup between the Māori and Indigenous All-Stars will feature a range of premiership players. We've got rep stars and some of the best young talent hitting the NRL stage across the men's and women's games. Dean, the emotion for both teams going to this game is just going to be huge. Yeah, it's going to be really special, you know. Um, I know both cultures look forward to this game every year and uh, to see it played in New Zealand for the first time, I can imagine the, the cultural experience for us as visitors in the Indigenous team will be special. But for those Māori boys going back home, in such a special place in Rotorua, it's going to be fantastic and it's going to go to a new level, so I expect that to come out in the way the game's played. Yeah, all right. Well, let's tap into it right now. Let's look at the Māori All-Stars side first. How much were the emotions that we just spoke about come into play and impact the way they play on the field? Well, they play with passion and fire anyway, and <laughs> to be in front of their home crowd and to have all their families there behind them uh, in such a traditional stronghold over there, it's going to bring the best out of them. They'll be quite emotional, so... 
I can expect a, a team that's going to come out full of pride and, and give, giving it everything and an explosive start from their boys. So there'll be some big performances by some of their big names. Was that some nerves in your voice just then? Yeah, we're, we're nervous, <laughs> we're worried because we're used to having all the support over here and the crowd behind us. So it's another challenge, but I also think that it'll bring the best out of the Indigenous team and, and we're preparing as a group uh, to make sure our sides have got everything they need ready to perform over there next week. All right, well, let's go into the Indigenous All-Stars side and there's quite a few combinations to returning from the 22 showcase and they have some serious strike power in that team. Yeah, well, the, the one I'm looking forward to is Latrell Mitchell playing with his brother Shaq. Latrell presented the jersey to Shaq last year in the All-Stars camp and got quite emotional and really rude the opportunity that he missed of playing alongside him. This year they get to play together, so I can imagine that's going to be very special for the family. And we've seen with Latrell, when he's got that emotion behind him in a game, that meaning in it, that he performs at the high level, and I expect him to do that. He was good in the World Cup, and I expect him to carry on to this season with a big performance. So really looking forward to Latrell Mitchell leading the side. All right, and uh, if you were to make a pick on which way this game goes over there? I only see it one way. <laughs> I only see it one way. I see our, our mob going over there. We've got a young team, quite inexperienced, uh, a lot of young players is coming through the ranks. I think Selwyn Cobbo will be excellent for us. He had a big season last year and he's been through a little bit of turmoil in this off-season, which usually means they can't wait to get out there and play. So, And then Cody Walker leading our team and Jack White and those guys, they're, they're experienced and they'll lead us around and they'll get these young guys through the game. And That's what I love about All-Stars when it comes to our Indigenous team. We've, we've blooded a lot of young guys over the years that have gone on to have first-grade careers and play representative footy like Reuben Cotter played when no-one had hardly heard of him outside of North Queensland. So we give those opportunities and hopefully we'll see that with these this new proper young players playing. All right, kickoff is at 3.45 p.m. Australian Daylight Savings Time. So that's uh, 2.45 p.m. in P&G and a little earlier the All-Stars women's game. That'll kick off at 1.30 p.m. Australian Daylight Savings Time, 12.30 p.m. P&G. And both matches will be broadcast live here on ABC Radio Australia. Now, we move on with Sporting Matters here on ABC Radio Australia and the most coveted trophy in men's tennis, the Davis Cup, generally only attracts attention when the big guns are involved, like Australia, who came as close to winning the famous trophy as they have in years when they went down to Canada in last year's final. But while that tie was played in November, the Davis Cup starts much earlier in the year for the lower-ranked teams like Pacific Oceania. After earning promotion last time around with a win over Vietnam, the team made up of Brett Bodnay from Cook Islands, the number one singles player Colin Sinclair from the Northern Marianas, and number two Clement Mangui from Vanuatu. They travelled halfway around the planet to take on Barbados in World Group 2, and team captain Hamrek Mara says the contest turned out to be an absolute nail-biter. We ended up losing the first match, actually, because our number two played their number one, Darian King, which our number two played a really good match, but Darian King was just very, very strong, barely missed the ball, and was very athletic on the court, so congrats to him. On our second singles, we ended up winning that one. Our number one beat their number two fairly easily. He played really well, very solid, so we finished that first day on one all. We were quite confident because we knew we had a very strong doubles team. When we got to the doubles, we ended up losing that first set, which was quite heartbreaking because we were playing really well. We just dropped one service game and ended up losing that set because of that one service game, 6-4. The second set was very, very tight. No one could break. It went all the way to the tie break. We were leading 6-3 in the tie break and ended up winning the tie break 7-5 on the serve. So that was a really, really good, uh, really good point for us. And in the third set, we played really well, managing to get that break and then, uh, and then winning that third set. Finishing the, the doubles, we were 2-1 up. And then, as I said, the two last singles, unfortunately, they 
Barbados managed to to do was the hardest thing in Davis Cup is uh, winning the last two singles in a row, and uh, and that hurt us a little bit. But you know, it's sport. That last match came down to the two top players from either country. You had Kaipo Marshall from Barbados and Clement Mengi of Vanuatu, actually. And I understand that match just looking at it, 4-6-7-5-6-3, really close. I imagine the whole team would have been on the edge of their seats watching that one. Well, to be fairly honest, I actually lost my voice on that match. Uh, <laughs> and I wasn't the only one. People, people in the team lost their voices because we were looking really good in the first two sets. We were serving 5-4 up to win the whole tie and Ekhapo played a really good game breaking us and then from that moment on the, the whole crowd from his side really took over and that's where it became tough for us but um, we were very passionate on the court I was standing on every point I was clapping because as a captain I'm allowed to be on the court and every time the player sits down and we can have a chat on tactics on how he feels and everything so so you really get connected and you really feel the emotional side of it and you really feel the emotions of the player and, and so forth so that was a really really tough match Really entertaining match, that's for sure. And, uh, and it was a really long day also because uh, the first game was at 10 and I believe we finished the last game at 10 a.m., finished the last game at like 6 p.m. So a long day on court. And we're literally doing this interview. You're in San Francisco right now on your way home. So uh, really tiring uh, few days, it sounds like. Was Barbados the higher-ranked side going into into the Davis Cup match? Uh, yes, absolutely. I believe they were for the group two, they were actually seated number five and we weren't even seated. So on paper, they should be winning anyway, which makes the loss even more heartbreaking because we know we can beat them. We know we had it. It was in the grasp of our hand and we didn't manage to take it. But it's, uh, it's a good experience for us. It's a good learning curve for us also. I hope that because the players are quite young, I hope that they walk out of there having learned a lot about themselves, about the matches, about tactics, about everything, you know. That's how players grow. Wins are always very nice, but you really grow from tough losses and I hope that they... They'll be able to grow from this and, uh, and we'll be able to come back this year in Group 3, win again and, uh, and go back and defend our colours again. Yeah, and looking ahead, you know, these David Cup clashes are obviously months apart. There's a number of individual tournaments that are played in between. What happens next for you guys? When will you guys all get together again and play your next Davis Cup match? Well, that actually hasn't been released yet. So they had to wait for all the ties to finish, which I believe they finished in the past few hours. I was in the plane, I think, when that happened. So they will take the next 24 to 48 hours to make the draws, and then they will come out with the dates. So until that happens, we don't really know. But usually, it's somewhere around September. There'll be a bit of a wait, but in a way, it's good for us because the players you know, can really grow, train. I'm going to write a report on what I believe they need to do technically and tactically to be able to grow, send it to them have a chat about everything. And then, you know, tennis is a, it's a single sport mainly. So the guys have to take it on board, try to grow and make themselves better players because they're always on the road. Yeah, and just tennis, it's not a sport that you often hear associated with the, with the Pacific Islands all that much. And I just look at your team and you look at some of the nationalities. You've got guys from Vanuatu, PNG, the Cook Islands. Tennis as a sport at the moment within the Pacific Island nations, is it in a good place? Is it is it healthy? Is there much talent coming through? That's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> the islands are so di- so divided into so many different little countries. There's a, there's a point of federation as well, because, for example, if you take New Caledonia, New Caledonia belongs to the French Federation. So New Caledonia, they have a lot of very good players, but they can only play Davis Cup for France, so they can't play for the Pacific. But to be honest, knowing the resources that Pacific Islands have, the courts, whether it's financial side or the actual sport venues, we do very, very well to bring out players like this. 
Like we have players from the Pacific that are top few hundreds in the world that play professionally, that have beat really good players, really top players. Even in Vietnam, in Vietnam we had Brett Bodine and Colin Sinclair, one from Cook Island, one from the Marian Islands, beating the number one seed of Vietnam in doubles. But that number one seed of Vietnam came back from winning four four challenges, memory is right in a row, and he's ranked like 200 in the world. So for someone coming from Cook Islands to be able to beat a player like this in doubles is very, very good. We have players that go to America, to colleges. We have players that are able to, to travel and play. It's very, very impressive what the Pacific can actually do, knowing the resources and the amount of people they have. Cook Islands, for example, 8,000 people. It's not too many. <laughs> It's not, but uh, they put a team together and they certainly gave Barbados uh, quite a fight uh, down there in the West Indies in the Davis Cup. That's the team captain there, Emric Mara, uh, talking to Kyle Evans. Uh, but in three days' time, some stars of tomorrow, perhaps, the Pacific Oceania under-14s. They'll be taking on Sri Lanka in the ITF World Teams competition. And you might just recognise some of these names. Uh, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Kai Nishikori, Joe Wilfred Songer, Justin Ennen and Amelie Moresmo. All past competitors in the ITF World Junior Finals. So who knows? One of these days, maybe we'll uncover a Pacific tennis superstar. Join me, Rick Howe, on Island Music for the finest in ska, rocksteady, roots, dub, sizzling dancehall and all the hottest releases from around the Pacific. Hi, I'm Ronnie Kareni from Sorong Samurai and you're listening to Island Music. My name is Tiani from Tetangio Takara and you're listening to Island Music. Join me, Rick Howe, on Island Music. Saturdays, 12pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Here with the Friday Sporting Edition of Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Richard Ewart and uh, time to cast an eye now over some of the sporting topics that spark in conversation and social media posts during the week with sports writer and moderator of the Fiji Rugby Players Facebook Forum, Tia Rocca. Tia, good morning. Welcome to the programme. Good morning, Richard. Great to be here. Now, I guess the story that's generated the most traffic on social media in the last uh, few days is the, the sacking of Vinaya Hambosi by the uh, Fiji Andrua rugby team. Uh, this guy is an absolute superstar. He had a standout season for them in their debut Super Rugby Pacific season last year, but he's with the club no more. He's implicated in allegations of domestic violence against his pregnant partner. Um, it's all a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yes, uh, Richard, a topic that is a hot one at that across the globe for avid Fiji rugby fans and the like, Richard. Now, how you extrapolate this issue is clearly dependent on the lens one looks through, Richard, and the discourse is amplified this week, uh, firstly, regarding uh, this alleged offence and more glaringly as follows. As we said, uh, Habosi is one of the superstars, not only of the Fijian Jua, but Super Rugby uh, Pacific, and he's affectionately referred to as the boss man. A young man of gifted talents and if investigated and found guilty, may have his career either ending or tarnished by the very uh, serious offence of domestic violence, Richard. To be honest, Richard, we're left kind of perplexed because we do not know how this high-level breach of conduct is substantiated, a somewhat uh, a vague post on their online platform by the Fijian Drua has left many in shock as to what the offence is, Richard. There is no further comment by the franchises to the details either leading up to or thereafter. A lot of 
online speculation, as we know. And what we know is that there was an allegation made, but our sources in Fiji Police Force asserted that a formal complaint had been made and they were waiting uh, medical reports to ascertain via investigations if charges will be laid against the 23-year-old from Nanjunga. And Richard, what I can say is that the online discourse is unanimously calling for an overhaul in player welfare and player management, and they're directing their concerns towards the Fijian draw and Fiji rugby. Uh, Current and former rugby players are involved in online conversations about the bigger picture issues around player welfare and player development in addressing the bigger social issues that impact impact on player uh, players and their family livelihoods. Remember, Richard, two weeks ago, I uh, talked about the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre putting up their hand uh, to the National Rugby Peak Body to come in and work together. Whether this issue um, expedites the process, who knows, but all up, Fiji fans are calling for an explanation of the process as to what constitutes a high-level breach of code of conduct and it's obvious no further comment is coming for Fiji, from the Fijian draw camp who left Fiji uh, not long after this news came out to commence their participation in the Super Rugby uh, competition after presenting their cultural uh, itatao to the Fiji president, Richard. What I think is, is striking a chord with a lot of people is clearly you know, domestic violence is unacceptable. End of story. Uh, but at the yes. moment, th- this young man, he hasn't been formally charged. He, he is being investigated by the police, as you say, a complaint has been lodged, and yet he's already been sacked by his club. And I think what, what people are saying is that maybe the club has, has dealt with this rather harshly because in the end, if, if a matter goes to court and he's found to be not guilty, what then? Yes, most definitely people are asking, has the Fijian drawer leadership jumped the gun? So... This is up for uh, speculation and people are calling for an explanation around the process, although everyone is saying zero tolerance to domestic violence, which is um, also a a big issue in Fiji when it comes to uh, players uh, when they are uh, within their own community and in the lead up to the season and uh, sometimes after the season. So this has happened earlier, uh, earlier on. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, it's all uh, rather unfortunate to to say the least, but uh, hopefully uh, the full story will emerge in due course and will be dealt with accordingly. Now on to the question of who's going to coach the Flying Fijians. Uh, Vern Cotter left in a hurry, rather surprisingly. He had his World Cup year all planned out, I understand. Maybe he was asked to spend too much time in Europe and that might be the thing that tipped him over the edge. So what are you hearing about who might get the gig? Is it going to be an international coach? We were talking earlier in the show about Razor Robertson, Dave Rennie, or could you see Sani Saravakula from within the FRU being given a chance? Well, you know, Richard, Cotter resigned just over a week ago. Uh, the chairman of Fiji Rugby accepted his letter of resignation and said that there would be uh, an appointment in due course. A press release was um, uh, put on Fiji Rugby uh, Rugby's website saying that it was due to personal reasons. Um, and in true Fiji star, there was a leak of the outgoing coach's salary, which caused online disdain. Uh, anything in relation to this sensitive issue, as we all know, results in an onslaught towards the management 
establishment of Fiji rugby, which then led on to the online discourse regarding the local versus overseas coach argument, Richard. So, you know, interestingly, other Pacific nations do not seem to have an issue like we do, uh, like the Fijians do. So, um, you know, we're a few months counting down to the Rugby World Cup and Fiji rugby are still looking for a replacement coach in the 15s, just like the Fijian and draw coach, and that is unfortunately still not settled with less than a week out to the Super W competition. Uh, Fiji rugby is seen to have, as you mentioned, side discussions with Scott Razor-Robertson, who is reportedly seeking clearance from New Zealand rugby to coach the Flying Fijians to the Rugby World Cup 2023 in France. So yes, Richard, that is still up for speculation, um, you know, versus the local contenders who are touted online as uh, Saomi Seravakula and uh, Simon Raiwalui, Richard. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happened if uh, Simon would take the job ahead of high performance, uh, outspoken gentleman as he tends to be, at least on social media anyway. Um, the Fiji Bati are also uh, looking to appoint a new coach. We're told that could be imminent. And I think the man that led them at the World Cup when Joe Rambelli got sick and had to go to hospital, the wise uh, Katavarata took over. And I think he's the favourite, isn't he, to get the gig full time? Yes, Richard. Briefly, earlier this week, I spent some time with Wise Kativarata, uh, who, as we all know, was assistant coach to Joan Dakuitonga at last year's delayed Rugby uh, League World Cup. Wise has now left for Fiji for an interview for the top coaching position for the Fiji Mbati. So that is an interesting development, Richard. When we last spoke to the FNRL acting CEO in 2022, uh, he did say that the coaching role uh, was up for grabs uh, with Joan de Kuitonga currently sitting at the helm. And we can expect that there will be some level of permanency in the hunt also for a new CEO at the FNRL office, Richard. So um, definitely uh, expecting some movement in that space. So the sort of clear out, if you like, that we're anticipating at the Fiji Rugby Union, the same thing is happening at the NRL. Essentially anyone associated with the previous government is, is likely to be out of a job. Yes, it looks um, like it at the moment, Richard. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on that situation and uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on Super Bowl 57 come uh, Monday morning uh, time in this part of the world as the Kansas City Chiefs take on the Philadelphia Eagles with a significant sprinkling of uh, Pacific Island players uh, in both teams, uh, notably uh, Jordan Mailata, the uh, the man mountain. He's absolutely enormous, uh, born and brought up in Australia, but with uh, Samoan connections, he will be there along with Isaac Samalo, uh, Marlon Tupolotto and uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. Um, what's your take on, on how much interest is generated by Super Bowl in the Pacific? I mean, do, do people follow the sport year in, year out, or do they only go for Super Bowl? Oh, look, Richard, uh, it's an interesting uh, question. Uh, you know, the four names that you mentioned, uh, the four Pacifica names, will definitely be shining in the history of uh, 2023 Super Bowl. Look, I'm a fan. I love watching the activation campaign around this worldwide uh, event, Richard, and I'm certainly proud to see Pacifica represented. I know in Fiji there is a small community of NFL uh, players who established a self-interest group many years in 
in Suva, many years ago in Suva rather, whilst I was living in Fiji. Does it have a following in the Pacific? I believe so. And uh, in particular in American Samoa, Richard, and also with diaspora Pacific communities that reside in the USA. So Richard, in 20, August 2022, uh, Dr. Lisa Uperez's book called Gridiron Capital, How American Football Became a Samoan Game, it charts the cultural and social dynamics that have made American football so important to the Samoan uh, communities in the Pacific and American Samoa. Dr. Pereza was quoted as saying that it's a story of Samoan communities on an island in the US and it's a historical discussion of American football within our Pacific communities and also what the sport means for communities themselves, especially considering it is big money and high stakes. So yes, Richard, a growing following in the Pacific and in particular the US Pacifica uh, diaspora. And it will all unfold, I think, uh, 10.30 Melbourne time on uh, Monday morning over there in the US. Super Bowl 57, Kansas City Chiefs against the Philadelphia Eagles. So enjoy the game, too. You're clearly a fan. Thank you so much for joining us on Pacific Beat, as always. Always good to be here. Thank you, Richard. Tiaraka, the moderator of the Fiji Rugby Players Facebook Forum and a sports writer as well, regular contributor to the Raw websites in particular. Do check out her articles, always thought-provoking stuff. And that's it from uh, this Friday morning sporting edition of Pacific Beat. Uh, don't forget, uh, over the weekend, uh, tomorrow, in fact, two big rugby league games are coming up. The Maori All-Stars versus their Indigenous rivals, men's and women's games, uh, with the uh, women's game kicking off at 12.30pm uh, PNG time. The men's game kicks off at 2.45. Full coverage of both games, uh, all the action on ABC Radio Australia. We'll have Pacific Review for you at various times over the weekend. And before that, at 5 past 3 PNG time this afternoon, Jordan Fennell will be here with the afternoon edition of Pacific Beat. Priyanka Srinivasan back at 5 past 6 Monday morning. Again, PNG time. I'm Richard Hewitt. Have a great sporting weekend.